Well, hey, hey. Hi, Desert Church. What a blessing to see you today. How you doing? Okay, take your word for it. Um, it's always an honor to be with the HCC family and to be with you again this weekend is a blessing, uh, especially to be a part of such an important series as the One Another's. Uh, but let me just give you a little update. Two questions that uh, I am asked most often is number one, have I fully recovered from surgery? And number two, how is the Oikos movement going? So the short answers are, number one, we just celebrated the one year anniversary of my surgery, where we um, are very thankful. They, they opened up uh, a hole in the top of my skull and inserted a machine in the left lobe of my brain and then a transmitter in my chest, all to mitigate the ever-advancing tremors that uh, had plagued me for most of my adult life. I think I'm almost back to where I was pre-surgery, so I think the answer is yes. I think I can say that we have fully recovered. My right side is pretty steady, and so we're thankful for that. Uh, and two, the OM, the Oikos movement, is going very well, but rather than tell you how well, I would simply ask you to go to the site oikosmovement.com and register to join our email list. Uh, I believe that is God's will for everyone who's listening to me right now. Um, I, I think it would be good for you and certainly good for us as we share content regarding what God is doing around the world uh, in this respect. And Cheryl and I would appreciate your continued prayers as you might be reminded from time to time by being a part of that uh, all-important group of people. Um, the world is really jacked up. It's a mess right now, especially in the Middle East. Uh, it's not just the Middle East, but it is especially the Middle East. And our hearts and our prayers are with God's people over there. Uh, today we're going to talk about forgiveness. And it's just an interesting um, convergence of theme and contextual reality. I was in Israel in 1982, uh, was the last time Israel was at war with, uh, at that point, Hezbollah in Lebanon. In fact, um, from many of the sites that we visited, we could hear the munitions exploding um, because of that conflict. Um, and so what I would like to do um, before we begin to open the Word of God today is just offer a word of prayer uh, for his people over there and for the church of Jesus Christ that we would uh, rise up and be the church again in uh, such a time of crisis as this. Uh, and before I pray, I just want to remind you, this has very little to do with what I came to present to you, so this is free. Uh, you won't be tested on this later, but we um, are all about the return of Jesus, and we want Jesus to come back, and it's at, a, it's at times like this that we want him to come back quickly, and I just want to remind you as the executive director of the Oikos movement, that the apostle Peter put it very well when he said, God is showing great restraint today. 
in not coming back because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I just wonder if sometimes we look at the return of Christ as all about us, save us, Lord, instead of recognizing that it really is about them, those who don't know Christ yet. I'm not sure we should say come quickly. I think we should say more often at least, Lord Jesus, wait just a little longer because there's someone on my front row who doesn't know you yet. And so let's not make this about us these days. Let's make this about those who don't know Christ and pray that they would find this opportunity to open their hardened hearts to the truth. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together today and to uh, look into your word and to read what it says about forgiveness and what it says about repentance. But our hearts are heavy, and we admit that. Um, We're at a loss for words sometimes, but even watching the events of the last few weeks unfold, again, we really didn't have the words to put out there that would describe how we felt. And there's just so much injustice. There's so much hatred. There's so much bitterness in the world. And uh, they need you, Lord. I pray that somehow uh, your people would again become a voice of grace and reason and purpose in these days. We ask that you would continue uh, to give your people strength to um, sustain the uh, very difficult days that undoubtedly lie ahead in that region of the world. Father, uh, just take care of your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're not going to talk about forgiveness today. I know I just told you we were, but we're not going to talk about forgiveness. Actually, what we're going to talk about is true forgiveness because there is a difference between forgiving someone and truly forgiving someone. We're going to talk about this kind of forgiveness. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17 as we begin, where God says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's true forgiveness. Lord, do you remember that sin I committed? No, I don't remember it. Sounds like some kind of self-induced divine dementia to me. Actually, I don't believe God ever forgets anything. But the level of God's grace is so amazing that your and my eternal outcomes turn out to be just as if God had forgotten about our sin. Isn't that something? That is how complete the work of Jesus on the cross was. And then the psalmist, anticipating the Messiah's coming, and under the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit, writing with an extraordinary understanding of geoglobal dimensionality, which was not natural for that generation. The psalmist wrote this 
in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, I've showed you this before, but I want you to watch this again and be reminded of the level of God's forgiveness. If for some reason you were to start at the North Pole and begin to travel south, you would only be moving south until you reach the middle of Antarctica because as soon as you pass the South Pole, you begin traveling north until you reach the North Pole, at which point you begin traveling south again. On the other hand, if you circle the earth by traveling east along the equator, you would always travel east. There is no point on the globe where you will stop traveling east and start traveling west unless you made a U-turn and began traveling in the opposite direction. You see, once you start heading east, you'd continue in an easterly direction for like ever. Had the psalmist declared that our sins are removed from us as far as the north is from the south, we could actually measure the maximum distance they would be moving away from us, which is approximately 12,500 miles from pole to pole, after which our sins would actually be moving closer to us again. And eventually they would stare us in the face again. But on a spherical planet like ours, it is impossible to tell where east ends and west begins. That's why the Apostle Paul reminded the Romans that you cannot get a conviction where there is no evidence to be found. This is how he put it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he said, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those or in Christ. Our eternal outcomes will be as if God forgot we sinned. You know what I, I call that? I call that true forgiveness. And, and by the way, whereas all the one and others that we have looked at in this series are very Christ-like, and that's why they're in the New Testament, <laughs> I don't think we're ever more like Jesus than when we do this one. This is our theme passage, the one I was assigned today, Colossians chapter three, verse 13. Look at this, bear with each other and forgive one another as, excuse me, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I'm gonna read that again because I screwed it up the first time. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The specific words the apostle chose in this verse, they paint a beautiful picture, not just about what forgiveness is, but about what true forgiveness looks like. And he outlines four steps. And I want to walk you through it in the way he outlines it. And then we're going to look at them again a little differently and hopefully this will not make you more confused than you are right now. Number one step, as, as it's listed in the passage, bear, bear. 
bear with each other. Now the Greek word translated bear is a word that literally means, this is very important, to hold up. The second is the Greek word, English word forgive, but the Greek word, form of the word charis or gift, it means to give freely, to give freely. So bear with each other and forgive one another. So hold them up and give to them freely. Just getting started here. Okay, number four, the Greek memphomai, it's from the word uh, memtios, it's translated grievance. It means rejected because one is condemned or fully blameworthy, or disgraceful, or condemnable. It was used to describe rejection that was absolutely deserved. Nobody's being too petty here with their feelings. Because a deep wrong was committed. In fact, the word was used to describe if an unrighteous act was committed or if a righteous expectation was not fulfilled. So it didn't matter if it was a sin of commission or a sin of omission. Either way, there's no question a significant wrong took place. So we get grievance. That's number four. Now you notice I skipped number three. Please raise your hand if you notice that. Thank you for listening. There's something that needs to be inserted into the sequence. And it's inferred here in the verse, but it's not specifically stated. What is stated is that forgiveness, according to the passage, needs to be the, the kind that the Lord offered us. I mean, that's what it says. So we have to take pause and ask the question, is there something required for forgiveness? God's forgiveness is activated by our repentance. True repentance is what the Lord requires of all who seek true forgiveness. This is so key. So that's how we're going to process those four ideas. In Romans chapter two, verse four, this is what the apostle Paul said about repentance. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing that it is God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance? God's incredibly kind offer of grace is the catalyst for our repentance. And Paul says, this is a no-brainer, folks. This is the easiest decision anybody could ever make. In the history of the human race, there's not an easier decision than this. Should you receive the gift, the grace of God, and have your own sins removed as far as the East is from the West, so that your eternal outcome will hold absolutely no condemnation because you will be in Christ. You see, for Paul, it's hard for him to imagine that anybody would actually show contempt toward an offer like that. Are you kidding me? 
the opportunity to trigger the benefits of God's grace and not receive any condemnation whatsoever for the sinful things that we have done or the righteous things we haven't done? And you're going to harden your heart and say no to that. See, the Apostle Paul is kind of in a mood. Because he's thinking and he writes, that's crazy. That anybody would show contempt for the riches of God's kindness. Anyway, back to Colossians 3.13. As, as Paul writes the Colossian church now, sequentially the dynamics of forgiveness are given in an interesting order. He says to bear with each other and then to forgive one another, to be grieved, there's a grievance over a deep wrong committed, and look for the kind of repentance required by the Lord for all of us. But when you look at those four in real time, they happen in a little different order. This is what your experience and my experience looks like. Same four ideas, different sequence. Number one, we start with the grievance. The grievance is committed. And there's no doubt about it. No matter how others may spin it, it was memptios. It was just plain old sinful. It was wrong. Okay? So the grievance is done. Number two, the offender is repentant. The offender is repentant. Metanoia is the Greek word for repentance and it requires that you or I make a conscious choice to actually change the way we've been living. The word literally means to turn around, change direction, and go a different way. In Acts chapter 26, verse 20, as... uh, Paul is speaking in verse 20. He says, first to those in Damascus, recounting some of his ministry history. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God. And this is the key phrase. And demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That does not happen in a vacuum. Forgiveness does not happen in a vacuum. Forgiveness is the correct response to repentance, but the same Bible that outlines a Christian's responsibility to extend true forgiveness also outlines the characteristics of true repentance. A few years ago, a lady named Jennifer Greenberg, she wrote a wonderful article for the Gospel Coalition. And so I draw some of my thoughts for the next few minutes out of that article because it was so well crafted. Uh, But she articulately laid out a case for biblical repentance where someone, as the apostle wrote, would demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Let me give you just five characteristics of true repentance because I don't want to lay guilt upon you, actually. Um, You've been offended. There's been a grievance. And maybe there hasn't been true repentance. 
So let's kind of analyze the repentance to see what it looked like. Number one, true repentance means they'll own, O-W-N, own the offense. A repentant person will feel the depth of the pain they cause others. They won't try to minimize it. They won't try to downplay it or excuse what they've done. They won't point to all of their good works as if what they've done on the other side of the ledger somehow cancel out everything else. They won't try to shame the offended individual because that person might be hurt or angry. They won't blame their victims or other people for making them sin. Rather, they'll take responsibility. They will acknowledge the damage they've done. They will express remorse. You know, when the prodigal son came to himself and recognized what he had done, in Luke chapter 15, verse 18, he said, I will set out, go back to my father, and I'm going to say to my dad, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Repentance requires that we own that. Number two. True repentance means that they'll make whatever amends are possible. Sometimes they're not, but sometimes they are. In Luke 19, we see the story there of Zacchaeus. We see how generous he became when he gave his heart to Christ. How he showed, he demonstrated his repentance by his deeds. He was a tax collector and a thief. He was a jerk. He was a punk. Somebody invited him that day to the Jesus meeting and he ended up hearing Jesus teach and he gave his heart to Christ. And when he recognized his sinfulness, he made amends. He said in Luke 19 verse eight, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And then Jesus confirms the genuineness of the true repentance that Zacchaeus expressed when Jesus said in verse nine, today salvation has come to this house. By the way, that word house is oikos. Number three, Truly repentant people will accept the consequences of their behavior. They'll accept the consequences of their behavior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul writes this, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to what? Led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so were not harmed in any way by us. Genuinely repentant people will accept the consequences of their sin. That might include losing the trust that others have in them or relinquishing a position of leadership or authority. They'll recognize that that's part of it. It might involve submitting to the government, governmental authorities, like law enforcement. When the thief on the cross repented, 
Remember that conversation he had with the other guy that was hanging there? Not the one in the middle, but the other guy on the other side of Jesus. He said, do you not fear God? We are punished justly for we are getting what we deserve. And it was that statement that prompted Jesus saying, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Number four, they'll change their behavior. They'll change their behavior. A truly repentant person will realize they need God to give them a new direction. They'll proactively work to change their behavior. They'll take steps to avoid replicating the behavior that caused the grievance in the first place. And sometimes that means going to a counselor. Sometimes that means going to rehab. Sometimes that means talking to a spiritual mentor, a pastor, someone who will hold them accountable for that. And number five, and I don't want to lose this. This is so important. Number five, truly repentant people will be awestricken by the opportunity to be forgiven. You see, if somebody feels entitled to forgiveness, they don't value forgiveness. Repentant people don't demand forgiveness. They don't even expect forgiveness. They don't say things like, hey, God forgave me, you need to forgive me too. That's not repentance. That's being a bully. And it indicates that the one who caused the grievance doesn't really understand the gravity of their sin. They won't feel entitled to being trusted. They won't feel entitled to being reaccepted. Rather, they'll be humble. They'll be willing to sacrifice what they want so that the needs of the one who was offended can be met. They don't pressure people to hurry up and get on with it. Move forward, forget the past, just move forward. They'll understand why they're not trusted any longer. They'll acknowledge their grief, the grief of those who were offended, and they'll honor the boundaries that are requested. Why? Because they are awestricken at the prospect of being forgiven for their sin. I guess you could say if we want true forgiveness, which we're going to talk about next, we have to be truly repentant. And I would say this, we're, we're all jacked up. I mean, we're all so sinful. And, you know, when Paul said he is the biggest sinner of all, I don't know, maybe a lot of us would give him a run for his money on that. But you might read that list that we just went through, those five things, characteristics of true repentance, and you might think about a grievance that you've caused in the past, and you might have been prompted by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate by your deeds a repentant heart, and you might say, you know, I need to do this. I have not sufficiently expressed my own awestruckness with the prospect of being forgiven. I don't know. But that might be why you came. You see, it's hard to truly forgive someone who's not truly repentant. And sometimes just saying, 
I'm sorry, let's move on. Just doesn't cut it. The word of God raises the bar. So let's be truly repentant for our grievances that we've caused others. And by the way, you might be thinking of a grievance someone caused you and kind of working through the list and saying, okay, we got three out of five, but I want the other two. But you're sinful too. So you might want to look at the grievances you've caused others and ask yourself if you've checked those boxes. All that to say, once we got the repentance down, let's keep pushing the ball down the field. Um, let me just say this before we move to number three. Uh, whatever you do when you've committed a sin and you and the people around you know, know it, you need to repent, truly repent. You, you need to do this. You need to walk down that list. You, need, you just need to do that. Now, let me just read a verse, then we'll move on. Romans chapter two, verse five. But because of your stubbornness and what kind of heart? Unrepentant heart. Because of that, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh man, we all need to show humility when it comes to our own sin. But let's assume the true repentance has been demonstrated. Number three, then forgiveness is given. Forgiveness is given. Now our verse for today, Colossians 3.13, is immediately prefaced, watch this, it's very technical, by verse 12. Um, I overstate the obvious. So let's look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, before we are challenged to extend an extraordinary level of love to others through this forgiveness we're gonna talk about, God wants us to know that we ourselves are dearly loved by God. We have the love that God has extended us. Agape manoi is the word there. We're dearly loved. It's a form of the word agape. And agape is an interesting word. We've talked about this word before with, with you. Um, and, and we kind of like the word agape. Sometimes we'll call a a class or a small group, the agape class. We, we like the word. And that's because we, we don't really understand the word. Of all the words for love in the Bible, agape is the one word for love we should not like. There are other more likable words in the Bible that are translated love. For example, hased in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for a beautiful, steadfast love, a covenant love. Racham is, is the Hebrew for the gentle love of showing compassion to people. Uh, the Greek phileos uh, has a big city named after it, Philadelphia, and it's brotherly love. It's an affectionate love. And all of these loves are very human kinds of loves. They're, they're what most of us aspire to do, and we aspire to do that naturally, but not agape. 
Agape is a pain in the neck kind of love. Agape can be a brutal kind of love. In fact, this is why the Greeks avoided the word and why you'll have a very difficult time finding agape in any ancient Greek literature except New Testament manuscripts. The Greeks avoided it because they knew what it meant. Agape kicks in when covenants are broken. Agape survives when the parties are still bleeding. Agape is the decision to continue living in Hesed long after your rights have been forfeited and you have the right to walk away. But Agape says you can choose to stay. Agape is the choice to love someone after the deep grievance has been committed. And what Paul says in Colossians 3.12 is that's the kind of love God showed us. We have already received whatever divine love we are asked to pass on to others. In fact, we've actually been commissioned to show Jesus sacrificial love to the world around us. You don't have to pray for God to give you more love. You don't have to say, Lord, I'm gonna need more love to show this person who has deeply grieved me. Because when you gave your heart to Christ, you were given that love. We simply have to put that love into action. Look at Ephesians chapter three, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell, the word dwell, katoikeo, we're going to look at that in a second. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in, in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, katalambano is the Greek word. We'll get to that in a minute too. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Hyperbolusin is the, the Greek word there, and we'll get to that in a minute too. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Kat oikeo. That's a stress relief word. It's, it's a combination of kata, meaning down with oikeo, a form of the word oikos, with your family, you know, when you get down with your homies and it's just, you're just hanging and you feel comfortable, right? Paul says we need to feel comfortable with how Jesus forgives and extend that kind of love to others. We need to become comfortable with this because when we're comfortable with it, we can now rest in it that we are so dearly loved, that God has showed us this incredible love, that now we can just, we can live in it. Catalambano, to grasp, refers to the act of possessing something personally, making something your own. It doesn't just talk about love, it doesn't just preach about love, it really grasps it, it experiences it, it recognizes that the absence of love is the presence of hidden sin. And Jesus doesn't just want to sit around and talk about loving people in these lofty kind of theological terms. 
He wants us to own it. He wants us to feel it ourselves. He wants us to be comfortable with it. He wants us to live it out. And there's no way to deny God's love, Paul says, because it's just massive. God's love, you guys. God's love is massive. God's love is wide enough to embrace all of us who will bow a knee to him. God's love is so long, it began before the foundation of the world and would carry us into eternity. His love is so deep, it reached us when we were buried in our sin without any hope. God's love is so high, it has already seated us in the heavenlies of Christ. You see, when Paul described God's love as surpassing knowledge in verse 19, we just read that. He used the word hyperbolusin because he knows that there is a life that we don't understand yet. There's a life beyond the one that so many of us presently even know about because we've heard about it. We've, we've listened to people teach about it. We've read books about it, but we haven't experienced it. That level of life that Jesus wants you to be at home with. He raised the bar for all of us. And we're now called to live life at a new level. We are citizens of a new kingdom. We've now entered this world of East is from the West kind of forgiveness. Forgiving people is your destiny. Because you are in Christ. And so now we treat others like Jesus treats all of us. And it's become more kat oikeo, more comfortable than we thought it ever could. See. But number four, and this is the last of the list. Number four is this. The repentant party is lifted up. It's lifted up. Remember what that word bear meant? To lift up. I want to take you to a great story. I'm just going to read it. It's a little long, but we get, we get three minutes. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they actually made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through the roof and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. I love this story. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there and they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why do you guys think what you're thinking about this? And he continued, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. 
But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to this guy laying on the mat, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And what did the guy do? He got up. He took his mat. (laughs) And he went home. Walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone and they praised God. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. Now, I immediately see a few takeaways from the story, and we don't have time to get into very many of them, but I want to give you one. Forgiving and healing go hand in hand. That's what I learned from that story. In a real sense, neither of those two things, forgiving sins or healing the man, neither of them would have really been easier than the other if you're God which of course Jesus was. And so Jesus perceives their thoughts and those guys are thinking exactly what I would have been thinking. Exactly what you would have been thinking. Well, only God can truly forgive sins. Anybody could claim to forgive sins. I mean, I could claim to forgive sins. Doesn't make it so but I could claim it. You could claim to forgive sins. So Jesus, how could we ever know if you actually can do that? See, Jesus knew what was going on in their heads, and so in order to offer some proof that he actually could save this guy eternally, he healed him right in front of everybody. And when you think about it, that's exactly the scenario that happened to all of us. We placed our faith in Jesus and we believed that he had forgiven our sin and that he had saved us eternally, right? So then, to prove that our faith was well-placed, Jesus put our lives back together right here. He rebuilt our broken selves. He restored our families. He renewed our confidence, the confidence that we had lost in ourselves. You see, you guys, you all, I have a testimony. We all have a testimony like the paralyzed man. He still changes lives. He changed ours. And maybe he wants to use you to change someone else's life today. By not just forgiving them, but by doing whatever is required of you to lift them up out of the paralysis their sin has caused them. A lot of us have tried to forgive. You might be sitting there listening today saying, I tried, I I can't. And, And even though the offender may have been truly repentant, you just can't bring yourself to forgive. And, and we do that. We fall short at everything, actually. And, and nobody expects us to actually forget the offense. But as Jesus followers, we are called to get over the offense so that it no longer negatively affects our lives. And so often these forgiveness failures are the result of offering forgiveness without offering true forgiveness. 
the kind of forgiveness that causes us to do more than just say, okay, I forgive you, but to become actively involved in holding them up, in bearing with them. Not just saying you're forgiven, but becoming involved in their restoration by helping them get off their mat that has crippled them. And maybe you do that by helping them find healing from addictive behavior. Maybe you do that by helping them find new connections of accountability. Maybe you do that by helping them discover who God really has designed them to become. Maybe helping them find new pathways for serving God or helping them discover ways to reach others with their story of redemption so that they can connect dots with the gospel, which is the ultimate story of redemption. That's what I mean by becoming actively involved, lifting up a truly repentant person. Forgiveness is a challenge for all of us. But the alternative to truly forgiving someone can lead to something far worse. Incomplete forgiveness leads to a haunting, continuing bitterness. One guy described hardening your heart to forgiveness as as being like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die. I read this a long time ago. It said, if you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go golfing. If you want happiness for a month, buy a new car. If you want happiness for a year, win the lottery. (laughs) But if you want true happiness for a lifetime, then truly forgive people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... uh, Forgiving us truly, 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 truly. I am awe-stricken knowing what you have put up with me. And I have given you so many opportunities to kick me off the wagon, send me straight to hell because that's what I deserved. And yet, you forgave me and you lifted me up. And by your grace, I will be willing to do that for others. And I really hope others are willing to do that for me and for each other. The body of Christ needs to reflect who we are. We are in Christ. Help us to forgive as you forgive. With everybody's uh, head bowed, just for a second. Just kind of thinking about what uh, we said today. Maybe you do need to, through your deeds, express your repentance a little more clearly to those you've offended. I hope you'll do that. I hope you make the effort even this week. For those of, of you who struggle with forgiveness, maybe something you heard, maybe the Spirit quickened your spirit with some idea that could help you take your forgiveness into that 
that new level, that hyperbolucin level of Christian experience by truly forgiving and bearing now with the individual that grieves you. But if there is anyone who is here who has never given their heart to Christ, I would compel you, if I could, to no longer show contempt for the offer of God's grace. And here at High Desert Church, you know the drill. ABC, admit, believe, choose. Admit you're a sinner, own that. Believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you and choose to follow Jesus, which will mean repenting, turning your life around, moving away from what has created the mess that you have become and following Jesus from this day forward. Lord, thanks again for the chance to be together as a body of Christ today. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.